Thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us and teaches us and, and exhorts us and it's good for all of our lives for building us up and for leading us to follow you more and more. Uh, we ask that that would be what we do today and Lord, most of all, that we would see the glory of Jesus today as we approach this issue of baptism. Uh, we ask that this wouldn't be a, an issue of division in our church, Lord, but that it would be an issue at which we look to your word and rejoice at your goodness to us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, today, if you have been coming along to Gospel Church uh, for a while now, you may have come expecting a sermon from the uh, Gospel of Luke today. Uh, we're not going there today. Uh, we're doing something a little bit different today. Uh, we are going to be talking about baptism. Quick qualification that I should give is that my preferred time to talk about baptism is when we're doing a baptism. Uh, we're not doing a baptism today, so so lament, but, but we'll get through it. Um, no, we're, we're talking about this um, because uh, we have been kind of going through some process as, as a church on membership and things, and, and it came to light. This was something that people had a variety of views on and a variety of opinions on, and as a church, uh, what we do when we approach an issue of any sort is we come to the Bible and we see what it has to say to us. And so that's what we're here to do today. Uh, this was, uh, we're also doing this on the advice of our external elders who help me with leading the church. They're very gracious, giving men who give their time for nothing in return. Uh, they thought it might be a good idea for us to approach this, not just in personal conversations, but through the preaching of the church. Um, so, we're talking about baptism. Uh, about the importance of baptism, about why we do it, what it is, who it's for. Uh, and, and this is a significant issue, baptism. Baptism is an ordinance, which means it was commanded by Jesus quite clearly. Um, he says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's a command given to every disciple of Jesus, every Christian. And so it's relevant for all of us. Uh, and we're going to see that the significance actually goes much further than that. Um, not only, though, is this a significant issue, it's an issue of a lot of debate. <laughs> uh, in times past, people have died over the issue of baptism. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if, you're, if you know that. Like, like there have been times in church history, to, to my heartbreak, where Christians have killed Christians because they disagreed over the issue of baptism. Uh, it, it works to my joy that as a Baptist, uh, my movement's never been on the killing end of that, which is, is a plus. We're a bit younger though, so um, we're not going to kill anyone. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that back for the recording. Um, thank you though, Jeff. Um, yeah, so, so this is going to be a little bit different today to our average sermon here at Gospel Church. Um, if this is your first time here with us, uh, this is not what you get bread and butter every week. What we do usually is we go through books of the Bible and we see what Jesus has to say to us. But this is something that we do do every now and then because when we have an issue, we go to the Bible to find the answer. Uh, this uh, issue that we're talking about here, we need to know though, it can't just be an information session today. Uh, because the very nature of baptism won't allow us to approach it as a lecture. When we see the importance of it, when we see the meaning of it, we must acknowledge that this is more than an academic issue for us. 
but before we go any further, let me say three quick qualifications, three quick asides for what we're going to do today. First, uh, I'm just going to chuck the, the Gospel Church cards on the table. Uh, the first of our core distinctives, first in order on the page, not first in importance, uh, is that we believe in believer's baptism. Uh, that is the practice of immersing a believing Christian uh, in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is as opposed to, say, infant baptism. Um, second, this is not a salvation issue that we're talking about today. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not an important issue, but it's not one by which anyone is saved. Baptism saves no one. It's a deeply biblical issue. The Bible has a lot to say on it, and therefore it is important for us. And I, I believe it is clearly laid out in the Bible but a person is not saved or unsaved because they hold to believer's baptism or because they hold to infant baptism. You know, great Christian leaders in history and today have stood on both sides of this fence. And it would be madness for me to throw people that I have benefited hugely from the faith and teaching from in the, well, you're not a Christian camp. Um, you know, I, could, I could list numerous you know, infant baptizing leaders in church history who have been an enormous influence on my ministry and who I would embrace as Christian brothers and sisters and I would disagree with on this issue. Connected to all of that, uh, I would quickly, quickly state here at Gospel Church, we don't refuse a person membership of the church if they uh, hold to infant baptism. We just expect them to hold it for Bible reasons and not to argue against the church's position on this. Uh, and third, third qualification, we're not going to cover every little detail of baptism in our message today. Um, there are some significant ones that we're just not going to hit for the sake of time, uh, such as the exact method of baptism. Uh, we're just going to come from the assumed viewpoint uh, that it is by immersion in water. Um, if you want reasons for that, we are doing a short Q&A after the service today, if anyone actually does have questions about this thing uh, called baptism. So if you want to ask that one, feel free to chuck it in there. If you feel like something's not covered, feel free to chuck it in then. Uh, so, having said my little qualifiers, baptism. What is it about? Is it important? And if so, how important is it? Well, baptism is very, very important and at the same time is of absolutely no importance in and of itself. Let me explain what I mean. The, the physical act of baptism doesn't really do anything. I mean, aside from get, get you wet, I suppose. Um, uh, so suppose, suppose, hypothetically, right? So, so suppose I uh, have a little breakdown moment right now and I run out the door and I, I jump in my car and I drive down to, let's say, Port Rickaby, and I run out onto the jetty, and I grab someone uh, forcefully, and um, that have to be a fairly small person, I'm not a forceful <laughs> kind of guy, um, and I, I drag them off the jetty, down onto the beach, out into the water, and I say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and boom, down they go. Um, and I bring them back up again. Uh, <laughs> it's important. Um, nothing's happened there uh, of any spiritual or eternal significance. I think we can probably all agree on that. Uh, you know, John's assaulted someone, I'm probably going to jail. But aside from that, uh, there's no mystical power in the act of baptising someone. Nothing good has been conveyed to that person. So, so why then do I, would I say that baptism is important? Very important, actually. And it's because baptism draws all of its importance, not from itself, but from the work of Jesus at the cross. Baptism is all about the gospel. And that's why this can never just be an academic issue. 
uh, it's very important for this reason. And we should approach this issue with an understanding of the scale of it. Because baptism is a, is a literally God-given way of expressing the gospel and its effects on our lives. So our structure today is that we will first look at the thing of first importance uh, on this issue. What is the meaning of baptism? We're going to look at the gospel roots of it. Uh, because there, are, there we find why it's so important, why it is so good. Uh, then on the basis of what we're going to see there, we're going to ask who is baptism for? Uh, and then we were going to talk about how is baptism done, but I'm going to leave that for the Q&A bit. Um, so, what's the meaning of baptism? And if I was to summarise it in one sentence, we would say baptism is a declaration and a dramatisation of the power of the cross to those who have faith. Baptism is a declaration and a dramatisation of the power of the cross to those who have faith faith. So baptism is a dramatic reenactment and declaring of the truth of the gospel. There are a few facets of the gospel actually that are being declared and dramatized in baptism which we find as we go to the Bible. Um, the first one, the one that stands most clearly from the Bible is that baptism pictures us dying, being buried and rising to new life with Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, which uh, Mark read out for us just before, uh, verse 3 to 4, we read these words. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is being baptised, immersed into the death of Jesus, symbolically, dramatically, and not just into his death, but into his risen new life. When a believer goes down into the water, it is an image of us identifying with Jesus, going down into death. And when we rise back out of the water, it is a declaration that he is risen and that his new life is now in me. We see this again in Paul's letter to the Colossians when Paul says that we have been buried with him, that is with Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism pictures the core of the gospel as applied to our lives. This is why, like, like we talked in Gospel Kids this morning about celebration. Gospel, uh, baptism is a celebration of gospel truth applied to my life. There's actually more even going on than that. Baptism pictures not just that, but also the washing away of sin and of all of its judgment. You know, in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, uh, an account of Paul and his own conversion, uh, him speaking his own conversion to others, telling them what happened, he recounts the words of Ananias, who said, rise and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on his name, on the name of Jesus. Now, clearly it is in calling on the name of Jesus that Paul is saved by faith, but, uh, but yet the imagery of baptism is so closely connected to that, do you see? It's put on display here because it's a washing and baptism is a picture of our sins being washed away. In 1 Peter 3, 
Uh, Peter speaks about the ark being brought safely through water, that is through judgment. And then he says that baptism corresponds to this. Baptism is a picture of us passing through judgment in the ark that is Jesus. And this builds on what we've already seen, do you see? Because, because I have died and risen with Jesus, my sins and my judgment are washed away. And so because baptism pictures me dying and rising with Christ, it also pictures the washing away of my sin and my judgment. But there's actually even more to the meaning of this act that is baptism. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's such a good celebration. Baptism is a declaration of my being born into a new family. When Jesus commanded the church to baptise disciples in Matthew 28, 19, these are the words that he said. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a significant background in the church, you might think in response to me saying that, well, so what? Um, yeah, it's good, don't get me wrong, but, but doesn't that just mean that when a person gets baptised, the person baptising them needs to say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, as they do it? And the answer is, no, there's actually a lot more to it than that. They're not just words. It's not a ceremonial outline that Jesus is giving us there. They declare, I have been born into a new family with a new name. Like, like when a couple gets married, right, and, and often the, the, the wife will take on the name of the husband and, and she becomes a part of his, or the, a new family is formed, really. Um, when you are baptised, it is a declaration that I have joined a new family and taken on the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the name of the triune God. You know, Paul writes over in Galatians chapter 3, or uh, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. So when a person is saved by Jesus, they are a new creation. And in a new family, they are literally born into a new family, born again by the Spirit. This is one of the reasons why baptism is such a big thing, not just for the individual believer, but for the church, right? Because... Baptism declares the entrance of this person into God's family, into the church family. You know, in baptism, we recognise this person is not just a distant stranger to me. They are my brother or my sister. So do you see, baptism is a declaration and a dramatisation of the power of the cross to those who have faith. Do you see what I'm saying there now? It, it declares and it dramatises how the cross of Jesus has killed my old, old sinful self and I have been raised with him. It declares and it dramatises my sin and my judgment being washed away and it declares and it dramatises my birth into a new family, the family of God. It is so significant and so beautiful. I don't, I don't know, like many of you would have been here last year when, not here actually, we weren't in this building, but uh, we, we baptised Mark, who's currently sitting behind the uh, sound desk, and I did not ask him whether I could talk about this here, but uh, oh well. Um, <laughs> sorry, can I talk about this here? Thank heavens. Uh, <laughs> what if you said no? Um, no, like, like, 
it's such a powerful thing. Like Mark was not just that moment converted, um, but he made the choice to be baptized. We went down to the beach at Port Vincent and we put him under that water and we brought him back up again. And it was this image of what has happened to Mark. That Mark has died with Christ, that Mark has been raised with Christ, that Mark is a part of a new family who was standing on that beach there with him, approving and enjoy celebrating that his new birth in Jesus, that Mark's sins have been washed away, that Mark's judgment is gone and he is a son of the living God. It's such a wonderful thing that we get to celebrate. And so having looked at the importance of baptism, uh, we need to ask the question, who is baptism for? Now, some of you will say, haven't you already made that point, John? And some of you will say, no, 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 he hasn't already made that point. So we're just going to go ahead with this. Uh, the clear answer, as far as I can see, is that baptism is solely for those who have received salvation by faith alone. And therefore, only for those who have credible evidence of faith in their lives, especially having confessed faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Uh, and I'm going to give you two uh, quickish, thoroughly biblical reasons for this and then deal with two really common objections to this and then we're going to wrap up. Like I said, this is an irregular sermon here. Reason number one, the New Testament clearly connects baptism to believing and or receiving the word. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Acts is this wonderful kind of treasure trove of examples of this. Uh, Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Luke records that those who received the, his word, the word that Peter had declared, were baptised. There would have been all kinds of people there, but the ones who were baptised were those that received, i.e. the ones who believed the word of the gospel. You know, question, how would an infant do that? Or, or better still, how would the person who is recording it know that the infant had done that? Because they would have had to, because they recorded. Those who had received it were baptised. In Acts 8.12, Luke records that when they believed, uh, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, when they believed him, uh, as he declared the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Once again, those who have believed the preaching of the good news were those who were baptised. Acts 10, 44 to 46, sorry, I'm labouring this a little bit. Uh, Peter calls for the baptising of the people meeting in the house of Cornelius because they have heard the word and received the spirit. In, in chapter 11, Peter says that those baptised there were the ones who had been granted repentance that leads to life. Clearly, baptism is only administered in these cases and in and I think in all cases here, after a person visibly repents and comes to faith in Jesus. Second reason, and, and there aren't only two reasons for this, by the way, but I just didn't want to keep you here all day, uh, is that the meaning of baptism as a symbol of having begun the Christian life only makes sense if it's practiced by those who we can see have entered into the Christian life. The image of dying and rising with Christ makes no sense, do you see, uh, if you don't know whether the person has died and risen with Christ. In fact, the words of Paul push us even further than that. Paul says, we, we read this just before from Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In Galatians, he writes, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You know, we should ask, has an infant put on Christ? Has an infant confessed faith in Jesus and therefore died and risen with him? Does an infant baptized at birth walk in newness of life in the sense that Paul is talking about here? Obviously, they have a sense of newness of life because they're literally just born. Has every infant that is baptized died with Christ and been raised with him? If you, if you believe in the perseverance of the saints, uh, i.e., I'm just putting a few more cards on the table, if you're a Calvinist like me, uh, if you believe that those who are saved by faith will continue in faith and you believe in infant baptism, how do you square the fact that clearly an infant baptized is not necessarily a person saved for life? And, and, and you might object back to that. Uh, well, you know, you don't know that every adult that you baptize is saved. And it's true. I don't. I don't have the eyes of God on the heart of a person. But we take the signs of salvation as demonstrated in Acts that happen again and again in the New Testament repentance from sin and a de credible declaration of faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and we baptise in the hope of genuineness. Only God can see the heart. You know, we do it very much like it would have happened on that first Pentecost, which says everyone who received the word was baptised. The clear meaning must be that those who profess to believe those who appeared to have faith were baptised. Now, I said I was going to deal with two objections. Let me quickly do that. And for the third time emphasise this is not how we normally do our preaching. There are two very commonly raised arguments for the infant Baptist who uh, might be sitting in this room right now and might be thinking, yes, John, very well and good, but the Bible says dot, 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 so, so you're, all of what you've said is invalid. Uh, so, so as not to misrepresent uh, those that I disagree with, and once again, I have many beloved brothers and father who I disagree with on this. Um, <laughs> was that too cheeky? I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm going to quote these positions from a fella named R.C. Sproul, who holds to infant baptism, or held to infant baptism. He doesn't anymore because he's died and gone to be with the Lord. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was too cheeky. Um, but if you don't know him, he was an American Reformed Presbyterian pastor um, with a prolific teaching and writing ministry, which I have benefited enormously from. You know, he's one of those authors, authors who I would, without reservation, recommend you go and read uh, for your own benefit. Or go and listen to, you know, we've got the inter interwebs these days. Um, so the first of these two lines of reason draws on the passages in the New Testament that refer to households being baptised. Uh, R.C. Sproul puts it like this. He says, 25%, I'm not sure if he's right about that number, 25% of the baptisms found in the New Testament are of entire household and those uh, these homes likely included children. It's a compelling sounding line of reason. Agreed? Um, <laughs> straight down the line, Jeff. Um, Three times in the New Testament, there are very clear, specific references made to the baptising of an entire household. The household of Lydia in Acts 6, 
15, the household of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.32, uh, and the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 16. However, what we find when we look at those actually in context uh, is that these instances don't actually provide a specific support either way in this discussion, but I think lean on the side of believer's baptism. Um, now, it must be said, and I'm not going to labour this, but it's a, it, it is a significant assumption to say that there must have been infants in, in three households in the New Testament. Um, but, but just quickly, um, the reference to the baptism of Lydia's household is, is brief uh, in, in Acts uh, chapter 16. Uh, but what we do know about her is that she was a businesswoman who ran her own household. Uh, and that alone, in the ancient context, really gives us a strong reason to believe that she was either single or she was widowed. Uh, which would probably mean that there weren't uh, infants in her household. Uh, in the case of the Philippian jailer, the whole household is said to have had the gospel spoken to them, uh, implying that the household here refers to those who could understand a spoken presentation of the gospel. And the whole household is said to have rejoiced at the saving faith of the jailer. And we must ask, were the babies rejoicing? Maybe, but, but it seems me um, to, that, that, that that would be an odd way to read the passage. Um, you know, you might respond and just say, well, it's just a generalisation. Obviously, the babies didn't rejoice. They were just there with the people who rejoiced. But then wouldn't it be logical to apply the same logic when we approach the issue of who was baptised? The household was, was baptised, the household rejoiced. When Paul says that he baptised the household of Stephanus in, in 1 Corinthians 1.16, we don't get any further detail than those words in the immediate context. But uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 15, Paul states that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Asia and that they devoted themselves, the household, thank you Ellie, the household devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And again we must ask, we must ask, were the babies devoted to, the serv to being serving servants of the saints? Were the babies the new converts that Paul talks about as the household? Or isn't the clearer reading of the word household that it is under the assumption, on, on the basis of the universal teaching of the New Testament, that is salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that only those who were able to express faith are being referred to? Finally, there, there are places in the New Testament that don't mention whether the household uh, was baptised or not, but which do say that the household believed in Jesus. In, in John 4.53, the, the, uh, the official there believed in the Lord together with his household. And in Acts 18.8, the household of Crispus is said to have believed in the Lord. Yeah, that, to me, strengthens the idea that when a household is spoken of, it doesn't necessarily include those who were not yet able to express whether they had believed or not. Think about it. Even if the babies did believe, even if some mystical way the babies believed in those cases, how would the person writing that have known that the babies believed? They say the household believed. Okay, second key disagreement or key uh, argument against me on this and we're going to go back to Mr. Sprawl again. Sprawl? Sprawl. Sprawl. There we go. 
Um, and it goes something like this. This is his words. The old covenant promises were given to adults and their children, and this was depicted in circumcision. Thus, it is hard to imagine that the greater new covenant promises and signs, including baptism, should not also be given to the infant children of believing adults. To, to boil it down, uh, baptism was the sign of entry into the covenant, into the old covenant. Shouldn't that, uh, no, circumcision was. And baptism is the sign of entry into the new covenant community. So, shouldn't it be applied to the same people? And, 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 and interestingly, I, I'm yet to meet the, the infant Baptist um, who, who is willing to hold this position to the extent of its full application. Um, you know, by and large, unwilling to take it to its logical conclusion. Uh, what I mean by this is that the commands of the Old Testament do not just say, parents, circumcise your children. Male children, obviously. They're not just uh, that the parents would have their children circumcised. When God made the covenant with Abraham and gave the covenant sign of circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17, he was commanded to circumcise children as well as male servants or male slaves in the household. And that's a consistent message of the Old Testament. And we might say, yeah, but we don't have servants and slaves today. Thank goodness, by the way, although some days. No, um, <laughs> but, but the thing is that People who were saved when Paul wrote, when the, the baptism passages of the New Testament were written, did. They did. Lydia would have had staff in her household. And, and, and so if baptism is to be taken as a one-to-one -one parallel with circumcision, should the adult, unbelieving servants and slaves that did exist in the Christian households of the New Testament have been baptised? We need to ask that. Let me put explicitly, should adult unbelievers ever be baptised? I hope that we would all agree that that's a no. Um, and I, I would say no, because baptism is for the faithful. But if you are to consistently hold that position from Scripture, in my mind, you must say sometimes in answer to that question. Should, should unbelieving adults ever be baptised? Sometimes. Because it's the circumcision of the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, adults were circumcised in without having believed so we should do that too. I, I hope that you can see that that creates some enormous problems. The, the key passage that, that an infant Baptist goes to here is, is Colossians 1, uh, verses 11 to 12. Uh, and it is, interestingly, exactly where I would say we find it refuted. Um, Paul writes this. It's Colossians 1, 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Colossians 2. Cool. Thank you, Matt. Typo. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. We've already actually mentioned this passage briefly connecting to baptism and having been buried and raised with Christ through faith, but it is true that it also connects baptism to circumcision. It is. It's, it's quite clear. 
But we should know it doesn't connect physical circumcision to baptism, does it? <laughs> it's to a circumcision made without hands, Paul writes. Over, over in Romans, Paul says that circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit. And it's this idea of being heart circumcised, of being inwardly changed. Another biblical term for that is being born again. That's what Paul is linking to baptism, which is to say he's connecting it to a believer in Jesus, to being a believer in Jesus. You know, a point of agreement here, uh, and there's lots of points that I hold in agreement with, with good infant baptizing brothers and sisters, is that I agree that baptism is the sign of entrance into the new covenant community. That's there. And is in some ways even parallel to circumcision. But the New Testament doesn't talk about a covenant community physically defined in the way that the old covenant did. It isn't made up of believers along with their children and their unbelieving relatives and household staff. The New Testament covenant community is spiritually defined, which shouldn't be a huge surprise. There's lots of things that are physical in the Old Testament that become uh, spiritual realities in the New Testament, greater spiritual realities in the New Testament. The, the only covenant community in the New Testament is the community of faith, the church, the redeemed. And the point when one enters that covenant community is upon being born again. And therefore, that is the time when baptism is to be practiced. And although there is much, much more that could be said on this issue until you were all very annoyed at me for how long I went on for, uh, I want to finish on that thought. Baptism is the sign of entrance into the new covenant community, received by faith, and that is not a point mainly for debating things. Because as the people of God, we have been brought by the blood of Jesus out of death and into new life. We have passed through the waters of judgment and our sins have been washed away, not by the washing of water, but by the blood of Jesus. We, we distant orphans, far from God, have been brought near to him as precious adopted children because of the work of Jesus, and so we are the redeemed people of God, and we celebrate that in baptism. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me, would you pray with me? Jesus, give us hearts, give all of us hearts, and give me a heart to sit under your word as it speaks to us, and to live in obedience to it. Give us unity as a church, first and foremost and always around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that, Lord, make us a people who are able to uh, hold secondary differences uh, without falling apart or becoming bitter with each other because we know that what we hold in common is so much greater than what we ever could have held apart. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for us and that I have been 
baptised into your death, that we who believe have gone down into death with you and been raised. Thank you that you've washed away our sin. All of our wrongdoing, all of the places we ran from you, Lord, you pursued us and you have washed it away in the precious blood of Jesus. Thank you that you have brought us into this new family. We pray, Lord, that as we finish today, that you would make us a people of a new family and that we'd be able to talk to each other as brothers and sisters under our good, good Father. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.